This is Dr. Stan May, and you're listening to Drawing from the Well, a weekly podcast by Chronological Bible Teaching Ministries. This is Jonathan Doolin here for the last time with Dr. Stan May to explore some of the discovery questions from Tyndale's one-year chronological study Bible. The first question is this, why does John say, do not love this world, and where are believers to direct their love, and how, is, how does Christ free us to experience that love? Jonathan, when you say last time, it's sort of a, a bittersweet moment. We've had a year together digging through God's Word and And as we wrap up, it's so fitting that we talk about that because uh, as we think about last times, John writes to believers who are facing last times, in his mind even, and he warns them about the world system. He uses the word world in his letter in three ways. First, he sometimes uses it just to mean the planets, the earth. And then he uses it to the idea of the inhabitants of the world because he will talk about God's love for the world. Third, he uses as a system arrayed against Christ. Now, obviously, we're to love the planet that he created for our good and for his glory. And John 3.16 tells us that he so loved the world, that is, its inhabitants, that that he gave his only begotten son. And even in 1 John 2.2, he tells us that Christ is the propitiation for the sins of the whole world. So here, John's got to be speaking of a system. Because this letter then even explains that system. It tells us that it's a system comprised of the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eye, and the boastful pride of life. This system lies under the sway of the evil one in 519. It has demons and leaders that seek to deceive in four in chapter 4 and verse 1, and it's going to pass away in 217. How do believers deal with this world? Well, we overcome the world by faith. We should not be surprised if the world hates us, but we're not to love it. Loving the world doesn't mean caring about the people. It means embracing a system that is anti-God. And so we're instead to love God and his people and especially love the saints of God. Christ's death lets us identify with him, embrace death with him, and realize that as he is, so are we even now in this world, John says. And part of Part of the world, uh, the reason, as you've already quoted, that he says not to love the world is because it is passing away, Um, and you and I are eternal creatures. And so if we cling to these things that are passing away, one day we will be and they will not be. Exactly. Uh, Everything, Everything that we can hold in our hand will one day burn. That's right. That's right. Next. According to 2 and 3 John, what are the differences between the true believer and deceiver Um, And what truths does John emphasize in these two small letters? These two little postcards, as Chuck Swindoll calls them, are beautiful in their simplicity about our walk with God. When John describes believers, he describes believers as bringing joy to God and to God's servants because they walk in the truth, they love the brothers and sisters, they live for eternal reward. They show hospitality, they support missionaries, and they imitate what is good. Now, if we stop and think, that's really a boiled-down version of what the Bible teaches us to be, the kind of people it teaches us to be. On the other hand, deceivers do not confess that Jesus has come in the flesh, do not abide in the doctrine, which is the full body of teaching about Jesus' Messiahship, and instead they seek to usurp Jesus' place in the church. In 3 John 9, we find 
Diotrephes, he says he loves to have the preeminence. When it says he loves to have the preeminence, Jonathan, he doesn't mean he wants the preacher's place. He wants Christ's place in that church because Christ in all things should have preeminence. Second John warns believers to guard against welcoming teachers who bear false doctrines. And third John commends believers supporting missionaries and warns against leaders who exalt themselves to that position of authority over others and thus usurp Christ's place in the body. To that end, the pastor is not a man who gets to tell others how to live their lives. He's simply a an outfitter to equip them to walk with God. And any pastor who purports himself to be more ends up being perilously close to what John warns against. Hmm. Next, why does Jude change the purpose of his letter? And what examples from the Old Testament illustrate his concern? And for what does he praise God as he concludes his letter? Well, Jude planned to write the believers about the common salvation. That's what he said. But he said, but the situation, unfortunately, devolved to the point that he had to change his topic. He said, I had been eagerly planning to write to you about the salvation we all share. <clears throat> but now I find that I must write about something else, urging you to defend the faith that God has entrusted once for all time to his holy people. I say this, he said, because some ungodly people have wormed their way into your churches. They were teaching license and encouraging sin. What is license? Well, it means the idea that you can sin all you want, and it's okay. There, you don't. If you, once you're saved by grace, you can just do whatever you want. Jude compares them to Cain, who killed Abel, Balaam, who deceived Israel, and Korah, who led a rebellion against Moses. After Jude warns these believers and calls them to remember the apostles' word, he concludes with one of the loftiest passages of praise in the New Testament, and it's worth just reading. Now all glory to God who is able to keep you from falling away and will bring you with great joy into his glorious presence without a single fault. All glory to him who alone is God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord. All glory, majesty, power, and authority are his before all time and in the present and beyond all time. Amen. Mm. Amen. Next. What do Jesus' letters to the churches in Revelation chapters 2 and 3 reveal about him and about the believers in those churches? To what Old Testament characters does he allude in order to show the need for judgment? The book of the Revelation is uh, the end, the new beginning. And Jesus appears to John on the Isle of Patmos. John, his faithful servant, the last living apostle, has suffered grievously for the cause of Christ and been exiled out to Patmos. And he's worshiping on the Lord's day. Hmm. He is alone, and suddenly he is not. Jesus appears to him and summons him, first after he reveals himself in his glory, summons him to write letters to the seven churches of Asia, real churches with real leaders and real problems, but churches who also represent his churches of all the ages. As he begins, he reveals that he walks among his churches and holds their leaders in his hands, which means that it is a dangerous thing to touch his leaders carefully. In these letters, Jesus reveals that he knows their deeds and does not judge as man does. He sees truth. Second, he shows that he is the judge of his churches, and he has the right to evaluate them. He has the power to take away their candlestick or reward, uh, or excuse me, to take away their candlestick or to reward them on the final day. The, the churches that require rebuke manifest the spirit of Balaam, whom Jude also referred, 
and Jezebel. And that's never been a really great name to be identified with. As you mentioned, we see that Jesus is among the churches. He is among the lampstands, which is him keeping his promise in Matthew 28 that he would be with us to the end of the age. Amen. Um, but also the fact that they're so regularly referred to as golden lampstands, that harkens us back to tabernacle language about the lamps that, that um, represent the, the presence of God. But also when we see lamps used, um, it's always that they, their source is from another light. They're a lesser light. So we see John the Baptist, for example, described as a lamp shining, a lamp burning, um, and you see that here, Jesus will be referred to as the true light at the end of the book of the Revelation. Amen. Okay. Thank you, Jonathan. Yes, sir. Um, next, why does the Lamb become the center of heaven's worship? And what songs are sung about him? What does that tell us about the Lamb? What do the martyrs request? And what does everyone on earth fear? Revelation is such a fascinating book. In chapter 4, John is summoned up to heaven to view a throne. He's overwhelmed by this throne and the one who sits on it, but he's left in distress when he sees a scroll in the hand of the one on the throne no one can read. As he waits, no one is found worthy in all of creation to open the scroll or look on it. So he begins to weep. One of the elders, however, tells him, stop weeping. Look, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the heir to David's throne, has won the victory. He is worthy to open the scroll and its seven seals. Then I saw a lamb that looked as if it had been slaughtered, but it was now standing between the throne and the four living beings and among the 24 elders. He has seven horns and seven eyes, which represent the sevenfold spirit of God sent out to every part of the earth. He stepped forward and took the scroll from the right hand of the one sitting upon the throne. John gets to see the lamb enter heaven. I believe that John sees the heavenly side of the ascension that he witnessed as a young man so many years before. As, and he watches Psalm 24 take place where the, the gates are lifted up and the, and the king of glory comes in. All of heaven's worship is now directed to the lamb. New songs are sung to the lamb. And they didn't sing many new songs in heaven in Isaiah chapter 6, they're saying, holy, holy, holy. In Revelation 4, 8, they're saying, holy, holy, holy. But John records three new songs that heaven sings for Jesus. You are worthy to take the scroll and break its seals and open it, for you were slaughtered, and your blood has ransomed people to God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have caused them to become kingdom of priests for our God, and they will reign on the earth. Then they sing, worthy is the lamb who was slaughtered to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. And then they sing blessing and honor and glory and power belong to the one sitting on the throne and to the Lamb forever and ever. Each of these songs demonstrates the deity of Christ. He is the object of heaven's worship and praise. He is worthy. And when he breaks the seals, the martyrs who have been slain for the word of God ask, how long until the Lord will avenge them? Jesus responds by continuing to break seals of judgment on the earth, so much so that the people flee from the most amazing phrase in the New Testament, the wrath of the Lamb. God uses this powerful statement to communicate Christ's terror. Even as a lamb, they are terrified of his power, presence, and majesty. Amen. Amen. Next, 
How does the incense altar of heaven compare with the incense altar of the earthly tabernacle? And how do the prayers of God's people affect the events around the throne? Well, in the Old Testament, the priest would offer incense daily, but whenever the high priest went into the Holy of Holies on the Day of Atonement, he would take the, the incense, put it on a censer, and enter as he prepared to worship and as he prepared to offer the, 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 the blood of the atonement. Jesus, the Bible tells us in the book of the Revelation, this incense is then taken in a different way, and it's offered up, and the prayers are mixed with it, and it's a fragrant aroma that allows, the, that allows sinful man to meet with holy God. In Revelation 8, the prayers of God's people are mixed with this incense, poured out before the throne, and they affect both the course of history and the course of judgment because God hears the prayers of his people. Mm -hmm. his prayer, the prayers are not ecstatic. They're not just for us. God answers the prayers of his people. Next, what titles, armies, and actions are ascribed to the dragon? And where else in the biblical story has he acted and how are believers to overcome him? Well, the dragon, identified as Satan, makes war against God and takes one-third of the heavenly hosts as his army. He's called the ancient servant. He's called the devil or Satan, the one deceiving the whole world. And he's called the accuser of the brethren. He comes to destroy the son who is born to rule. And when he cannot, he tempts God's people and declares war against all of God's people who maintain their testimony for Jesus. Believers are not able to overcome him in their own power. Instead, he, 12, Revelation 12, 11 says, they have defeated him by the blood of the lamb and by their testimony, and they did not love their lives so much that they were afraid to die. When believers trust in Christ's blood shed for them, when they keep and give a clear testimony, and when they're will, willing to give their lives as a living, and if necessary, a dying sacrifice, they experience true victory over the dragon, the devil. And lastly, how do the new heaven and the new earth restore what was lost of the first creation and make right what went wrong? How does the book of Revelation prepare you and prepare us for the Lord's return? Well, the new heaven and the new earth echo the first heaven because, and the first earth because there's no more curse, just like there was in Genesis 1 and 2. Someone said that the Bible... The bookends of the Bible, Genesis 1 and 2, and Revelation 21 and 22, mark the Bible well. In the first two chapters, there's no curse, there's no death, there's no sin, there's no shame, there's no guilt, there's no sorrow, just the presence of God with His people. In Revelation 21 and 22, there's no more dragon, there's no more death, there's no more curse, there's no more guilt, there's no more shame, there's no more sin, there's no more parting. There's no more sea because there is no more separation. Mm -hmm. The tree of life that was in the garden now has leaves that bring healing for the nation, and its fruit provides a different crop. This is so interesting, a different crop of fruit, a different type of fruit mm -hmm. every month. Can't wait to taste that fruit. And it sits in the center just as it did in Eden. The curse is broken so that God's people can enjoy God's presence fully. Every facet of the new heavens will be fully fruitful, unlike the futility Romans 8.19 depicts in our present age. Every believer will be um, fully satisfied because the God who made them and knows what brings them the greatest joy will let them taste it to an ever-increasing fullness. 
Worship will be joyful, untinged with sin. Time will be no more, so believers will not have to part from one another. Service will be fully satisfying. Life will have full purpose. Joy will be our undiminished portion. One of my favorite quotes of, uh, uh, in any commentary is R.C. Trench when he comments on Romans 12, on Hebrews 12.23, and he writes on the glory of heaven when all God's people are gathered there. He says, The apostle sets forth the communion of the church militant on earth with the church triumphant in heaven, of the church toiling and suffering here, with that church from which all weariness and toil have forever passed away. How could he better describe this last state than as a panegyrist, that glad and festal assembly of heaven? Very beautifully, Dalich says, panegyrist is an assembly that is at full count and is exceedingly festive in mood and indulges itself in a revelry of delights. At the mention of Panagyrus, one thinks of festive song, festive frolicking, festive games, and indeed, life in the presence of God is a truly unending, festive celebration. All this will be true because, just as he purposed from the beginning, God will once again be with his people. Jesus will be with his people. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Dr. Mann.